Chris, I have some thought experiments for you today. Okay. Here is my first one. Suppose I buy a ship. I'm not much of a boat person, so obviously this is a scenario that I'm making up. But suppose I buy a ship and a lot of maintenance goes into owning a ship. And I have this ship for several decades. And over time, some of the parts get old, they get damaged, I get it repaired, I pay someone to replace the parts. And after several decades, I'm getting ready to pass this down to my grandchildren. And over the life of this ship, I have replaced every single part from when I originally bought it. Okay. Is it still the same ship or is it a different ship? It's a great question. Uh, is there an answer that I'm supposed no. to... Co- okay, okay. No, so okay. that's why it's a thought experiment. It's um, not black and white. My mind goes two ways. The first way is... No, it's not the same ship because nothing's the same, right? That's sure. like that make that makes logical sense to me. It's not the same. However, that is the entire time up until this point, some part of that ship was the same ship, which and its connection to me remains the same. You know what I mean? Like if I'm the person taking care of it, I think I have to say no. I think my answer would be it's not the same ship, but it does still fill the exact same piece of me that the other ship would have. Right, absolutely. So this is known as the ship of Theseus. It's based off an ancient Greek story, and it's come up a lot in recent years, especially in science fiction, specifically about like cybernetics. Like if I replace my arm with a robot arm and I keep replacing parts of my body, at what point am I still me? Uh, But today, I want to talk to you about a similar situation, but it's about a stew in Bangkok, Thailand. Stew? Yes. I'm talking about a perpetual stew. Oh, I, I, I would preface this by saying I've heard of this, but I don't know what it is. Yes. So there is a restaurant in Bangkok, and it's been in the family for about 50 years, or at least this stew has been going for 50 years. Wow. Same recipe. Every day they're making the stew. And at the end of the night, they put the leftovers in the fridge. The next morning, they take the, lef- the leftovers out. They put it back in this giant pot they cook it in, put new ingredients in, serve it up. And they've repeated this every day for 50 years. So my question to you is, is it still the same stew? <laughs> Welcome to the Factoid Podcast. You didn't ask for it, but we're going to tell you anyway. My name's Chris Humphreys. And I'm Peyton Gessel. Now, Peyton, today what I want to talk to you about actually sort of combines two things we've already talked about on the podcast, but it's in a new and fresh and exciting way. Uh, We're going to be talking about uh, birds, kind of like we did with Crowbox, but also data transfer, kind of like we did with the underground internet tubes. Great. We're going to answer a question that has been answered before, I just found out, um, and they just revisited again, which I also just found out. Can a pigeon transfer data faster than the internet? (laughs) I know, I know. And this is a question I'm sure we've all wondered many times. Uh, I, for some reason, I actually hadn't thought of this before, but uh, the algorithmic gods gave me uh, this video. Um, It's actually by a guy I follow, subscribe to on YouTube, have for years. He's kind of a guy in the... 
he deals with like home servers and raspberry pies and stuff but he did a video all about can a pigeon transfer data faster than my gigabit internet connection and it's very interesting because someone in south africa actually tried this in 2009 uh, these people in an it company in 2009 tried it they wanted to see if a pigeon would be faster than an adsl connection in 2009 in south africa uh, what's interesting is uh, things have changed a lot since 2009 right so it's it definitely needs a revisit uh, one thing that hasn't changed, however, is pigeons. They're exactly the same, <laughs> okay? And uh, this is kind of an interesting topic. So let's start by talking about the pigeons, okay? First, they're called homing pigeons. Uh, they're known as carrier pigeons, but they're only called carrier pigeons because of what we use them for. They're actually called homing pigeons. And a homing pigeon is a specific breed of rock dove. Uh, and a specific breed of rock dove that basically has this superpower that means they can return home from anywhere like they have this instinct built in we don't train them we don't teach them they just know how to get home they understand which is pretty crazy yeah. um, and going all the way back for many many decades and generations and thousands of years pigeons homing pigeons have been used uh for sport it started out with like pigeon racing uh and they would go back they, they would take their pigeons all these people would get pigeons they would take them many many miles away uh 50, 100, 200 miles away, uh, and they'd let them go. And then they'd have people waiting at the place where they're at home, and they would say who got there and how long it took them and what time they arrived. So then they could go back and extrapolate data, like how long did they go, what was their average cruising speed, and also who's the fastest pigeon, right? It's like a sport. Yeah. Uh, it's like, I understand why it's interesting. Here in Ohio, uh, people care about animals a lot. And so I've been kind of getting into fair culture a little bit. We've been going to the fair and seeing all these people show animals. It's really interesting. Um, so people care a lot about specific things that their animal do and how they look when they're doing it and all that. So I can understand how people would want like the pigeon that's the fastest, you know what I mean? But also they probably want the pigeon that's the fastest that like looks the fastest. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I understand. You're putting, you're painting flames on the wings and that's things right. like that. That's right. He's he's not going to just be your your average old every you know everyday pigeon. He's going to look like a, a carrier. Yeah, pigeon. not your daily driver. That's right. That's right. This guy gets special treatment. And so since this ability was discovered, which is also interesting to think about, how did they figure that out? Since it's been discovered, they've been used for sport, but not just for sport. As soon as someone realized the capabilities of this, they also use this as a way to transport communication, right? Of how to get a message from one place to another. That's why they call them carrier pigeons because they would strap a note to their leg and they'd fly home and they would be able to get home much quicker than whoever had the message, right? right. So you would maybe carry one around with you in your pigeon backpack and then you find there, you go there, you get the information you need and you write it down and you send the pigeon home, right? So your family knows, hey, I'm here at my campground or whatever. I don't know what they use it for specifically. Yeah, I feel like our phones are very sterile by comparison. I kind of like the idea of having like this little buddy that I send out to send the message instead of like tapping on my phone and saying, Amy, I'll be home in 20 minutes. Exactly. It's it's way, it's way definitely way cooler. Like it feels a lot better for that to be how you do it instead of just being like, oh, I made it, right? It's kind of like having your own Pokemon kind of. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It makes it, it makes it a game almost, which is how you want it, right? So, but for years, this is how they've done it. This is what we've used them for. Uh, this is what a homing pigeon does. And while they're limited by distance and by environmental factors and certain things to a degree, they're very good at what they do. They always go back home. Um, and they're, they're actually able to do it as far as, believe this or not, 1,200 miles these things can go. Wow. I know. That's a long way, 1,200 miles. So with the internet progressing along as it did in 2009, an IT company in South Africa naturally had the question... 
would a pigeon be quicker? So an ADSL connection in South Africa was actually on average quicker in South Africa than it was in the United States, which is interesting because a lot of times we think of the U.S. as being like so far ahead in these things. We're number one, but actually our infrastructure doesn't really allow for that. Exactly. So in South Africa, they were quicker than us, but they were still thinking, people in the IT world, like transferring data from this server to this server and from this call center to this call center, were like, this data is so slow. I hate it. Oh, I can't do Pigeons faster than this, some guy says, right? And then they were like, I wonder if that's true. So they decided to figure it out. So in 2009, to, to put into context, the average ADSL speed in 2009 was like eight megabits per second, right? Okay. So yeah. not, it's not terrible. Like that's still rural internet speed now, right. uh, but it's not good, right? Not good for transferring large files specifically. But that is how this test was birthed. Someone made a joke about it. And it's like, let's go ahead and do it. So that same company decides to run the test. And so they strap four gigabytes of data on, on a flash drive or an SD card or something to the leg of a pigeon, right? His name is Winston. <laughs> and they have him fly 60 miles from one data center to another, right? And so they want to know if they start a transfer on the internet, four gigabytes to that other data center, if they start at the same time as they start the pigeon, what's going to happen quicker, right? And so here's how the test has to work. The pigeon Flight is only part of the equation, right? The first part is we have to put the data onto the flash media. So they have to transfer four gigabytes of data onto a flash drive or a, a memory stick or a SD card. And then they have to strap to the bird. Then the bird has to fly. Then when the bird gets there, they have to take it off and then transfer it to the new computer. Sure, that's right? fair. Because you don't want to cheat just in favor of trying to make the pigeon thing work. You do need to look at the full workflow process. Exactly, because you want to have that file from one computer to a different computer, not just on a flash drive, right? The pigeon pipeline is seamless. That's right. We want it to be seamless. So they do that, right? And in slightly over three hours, it takes about an hour for them to put the data on the flash drive. It takes them about an hour for the pigeon to fly and about another hour for them to put it on the new drive. In that three hour time period, get this, the internet online transfer was at 4%. Oh my god! So this pigeon blew <laughs> the internet out of the water. Which makes you wonder, like, are we doing this right? But that leads me to now, right? Internet has gotten, the average internet speed in America is 300 megabits a second now. So we're talking uh, like five, 50 times faster, right? So it's still, it's significantly faster, but also the amount of data that we use, uh, the files that we use, different types of files, the the vast amount of stuff that we have, it, it takes up a lot more space, right? So we want to know in today's day and age, in this day and age, is a pigeon still faster than the internet? This would be really helpful for me at work because whenever we are doing a video project, about one in every two or three times, our client wants to have all of the project files afterwards. And when you're doing a big video project, sometimes you're not just shooting like, here's one take of this one thing, here's take two. Sometimes you just have to roll for 10 minutes and hope that the thing happens during that time. So we had a client that we finished a project for a few months ago, where we had a lot of back and forth frustration with them about getting them the project files, because the project was about 600 gigabytes. Okay. And they did not want to get like we asked, can you just mail us a hard drive? We'll mail it back to you. And they were very insistent on not doing this. And they wanted us to transfer it over the internet. And they actually, I had to jump on a call and speak to one of their managers. And uh, Carrie was her name. And Carrie <laughs> is saying to me about like, hey, this in 2023, this shouldn't be a problem. Like, 
you should be able to get us these files over the internet. And I didn't say it, but I wanted to say, Carrie, what is the largest file transfer you've ever done in your life? Yeah. I can't just say 600 gigabytes magically over to you, no errors. Right. That's the thing. There's so many errors that can happen on the upload, so many errors that can happen when they're trying to download it. All this, plus all these cloud services, sometimes they compress things funny. It just is, yeah. it's a nightmare, honestly. Uh, you can't just send a 600 gigabyte video file in an email. It's, it doesn't work like that. Right. Right. And and so that's like the valid way to do it is for them to ship you a hard drive. You know what I mean? That's, yes. that's how it should work. But that's why the pigeon thing is so interesting, I think, because sometimes it doesn't make sense. Like it doesn't make sense physically have a drive and move it right sometimes it just doesn't because with large amounts of data video files 600 gigabytes and i I know that if it's like raw video files sometimes it's i mean it depends how long of a thing right right? it's it's thousands and thousands of gigabytes absolutely so this uh was answered by a guy i watch i'll I'll link the video we'll have the video linked his name's jeff greerling um and uh he decided to try this out and so he did a lot of the the video shows a lot of the technical aspect of what he did. Like he was very particular in getting the speed of his transfer from his computer to his drives as quick as possible. So he bought really high end, uh, like flash drives that were basically like a little tiny SSD inside of an enclosure. Like they're very, very high end and very expensive and they're super lightweight and small. So he could take the casing off and they could fit on the pigeon. But he also did a lot of work on like the computer end of how to get the file to transfer as quick as possible from the computer to the drive. Right. So that we could, so we could get wrapped get that variable out so it could be as quick as possible. Right. How many times can I say as quick as possible? <laughs> um, but basically, long story short, uh, he he finds some pigeons, some carrier pigeons, some homing pigeons, and he finds the drives he wants, he has the test he wants, and so he does it. He does a test, It's except this time, he has a gigabit internet connection, which in theory is 1,000 upload and download, right? Yeah. So it's, it's we're talking 200 times faster than the Africa speed, right? And... He wants to know, well, what's how does this work? What's this do? And and of course, there's probably math you can do to figure this out without trying it. But how fun is that? Right? Yeah, that's kind of what I end up doing at work. Where I look at like our upload speed and multiply times how much yeah time. And then I give an estimate and I say, it might be 12 hours. But if we have the tiniest little blip in our internet connection, right. we have to restart. Right. And to assume that it's going to be consistent the whole time is not true. It never it is. It never is. Right. And so that's what his thing, he said that he could actually count on 75 megabytes per second of internet transfer so he does it he he does this he straps three three of these onto it and and he does the trip but there's also a second tier right and he realizes that pigeons do have a limitation on their distance so he decides well what if i dress up like a pigeon and ride a plane 5,000 miles and try it for myself too <laughs> i'm just curious he's just curious to know if this works too right so right there's first, nothing else he could be doing during no, that time no for, first one is actual unassisted normal pigeon second one is jet assisted pigeon <laughs> uh and then the third one is the internet right so we're gonna see which one works and he he ends up with a graph that shows us the proof uh, the proof in the pudding that pigeons are still faster even than gigabit internet even today right but it's it's over certain circumstances and under certain uh requirements right uh taking into account the data transfer on both ends the travel time and all of that the homing pigeon unassisted would win a race of about 500 miles you could transfer three terabytes of data go 500 miles transfer three terabytes of data faster than you can do it on the internet even over gigabit right i'm currently looking at the distance from that client all right, 
400 miles. So we're so we could pigeon it is what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> Next time you're on a call with her, you should suggest there is a third option. <laughs> so over 500 miles, unassisted normal pigeon wins every time. That's which is wild, right? Yeah. Second thing, jet assisted pigeon, which again, whatever, right? That wins in a distance of up to 5,000 miles, right? So if you're taking a jet, if you're flying up to 5,000 miles, you can move physical media quicker than you can do it over the internet. Mm -hmm. But anything past that, and it makes more sense to do it on the internet. Right. Uh, Again, is it a question I ever thought to ask? No. Is it a way I ever thought you could actually use a pigeon? No. Uh, I definitely didn't. But it made me realize maybe I should start carrying physical drives with my data from my house to my job. When I was in high school, our classrooms were full of these motivational posters. Okay. I'm sure you can imagine them. They probably have a mountain or they say you miss 100% shots that you don't take right. or you, know, you get the idea. In Mrs. George's chemistry class, she had very specific posters that were not motivational in nature. Uh, and to be fair, I think she got them as like a freebie when she bought chemistry supplies. Sure. They, they came from the company that supplies all the schools with beakers and flasks and whatever. And there was an illustration on these posters. And it was of a girl with dark glasses and a cane. And they said, Carol never wore her safety goggles. Now she doesn't need them, <laughs> which is terrible. Yeah, it's awful. It, it can, like it's hard to believe that fifteen years ago we were in high school and that was just like an acceptable thing to have posters that made fun of a blind person. Yeah, that was fine. All just to motivate kids to wear safety goggles. Uh, so I looked into the where these are today, not in her classroom, but online. I found a change.org petition to remove them from sale, and it apparently worked. No. So about eight years ago, you cannot buy these from Flynn Scientific anymore. And I went online just to see, like, what are they doing these days? So they have new ones up, and they're not as funny or clever. Like, there was one that has a Labrador retriever, and it says something like, uh, proper lab attire includes goggles or something. <laughs> like, it, like, it's not bad, and it shows that, you can make a joke without putting somebody down. Right. So I feel like the reason why the poster worked, I guess, is that it's hard to to show this person is blind. And the way they did that is that they had Carol holding a cane in her hand. Right. And I feel like canes are the universal symbol for blindness. Like when I was typing out some of my notes on my phone and I would write the word cane, it would actually like pop up an emoji of the red tip cane oh. show for blindness. And you associate them so much with that, like, blind navigation. So it was very surprising to me when I learned that some blind people have an alternative method for navigation that doesn't use a cane. Okay. First, though, I want to take you down the Wikipedia rabbit hole that led to me discovering this. I don't know if this is compelling content, but I just want you and (laughs) the listeners to understand how my brain operates on a daily basis. Okay, I'm interested. So I'm reading an article about a video game developer. The developer's name is The Chinese Room. And I thought, that's a weird name for a developer. There must be more to this. So I looked up the what The Chinese Room actually stands for, and it's 
another thought experiment. Okay. And it doesn't really matter. It, it's about like AI sentience, something along those lines. And I keep going to the see also section at the bottom of articles. Okay. And as I'm going, I eventually find a philosophical paper that is called what is it like to be a bat? And it's written by a philosopher named Robert Nagel. And in the paper back in the 1970s, he said that humans can never truly understand what it's like to be another conscious being. And he uses the bat as an example because he had a bat infestation at his house around that time and he observed them a lot. And he chose the bat because it's a mammal, but it's very different in the way it lives its life than a human. So according to him, you can't truly imagine what it's like to be a bat. You, you can observe it, but you don't know truly what it would be like if you were always a bat. And even if you started as a human and you, like, anamorph style slowly turned into a bat, you would have the experience of a human-turned-bat and not just born as a bat. And one of the cruxes of his argument is that bats rely on echolocation to navigate. And because humans can't comprehend this, this is one of the things that you would never be able to truly know what it's like to be a bat. And I'm reading farther down in the article, and I find the list of criticisms of this article. And there was another philosophical paper written in 2000 by two people named Eric Schwitzgabel and Michael Gordon. And they pointed out that this argument is invalid because humans can perform echolocation. Interesting. I did not, like, I, who's out there doing this? Yeah, I, I, can I? You'll find out. So who's doing this uh, is a man named Daniel Kish. He's a guy in his 50s. He lives in California. And when he was one year old, I think he had some sort of cancer in his eyes. Okay. So he had to have both of his eyes removed. So for essentially his whole life, he has been truly blind, no vision at all. Wow. And he obviously grew up using a cane, but he has been able to pioneer a technique that doesn't use a cane or you can supplement with it. But he uses a series of tongue clicks where he does something kind of like this. And he listens to the echo as the click goes out, and he makes the click sound the same every time. And that way, he is able to hear the sound bounce back to his ears, and he is able to know how to walk around places. So I watched a video of this guy, and he's like, going on a hike or he's riding his bike around hmm. and he is just every once in a while doing the click and he is able to avoid obstacles. He will ride his bike? Yeah. There's video of him just riding his bike on a trail. That's, uh, that's crazy. I mean, he's not going like super speed, but he's going as fast as I probably would. And what's even crazier is, so he's not just able to identify, is there something in front of me versus not? There's a time when they take him around to different places in a park and he walks over to this area and he does a few clicks and he says, like, this tree, it's a very odd shape. Instead of it growing up, it like grows around to the right and then never goes up and does this thing. And you would never have been able to guess that a tree looked like that. No. This guy knows what he's doing and he can tell the materials. He can tell that based on the echo, this is a tree. This is not a post. This is not 
another person. That's insane. Yeah. So as I was trying to understand, like, how many people do this, it seems like it's maybe a few hundred. Like, he teaches people at a school, but this is not... Obviously, this is not common because you would probably have seen someone doing this. Right. So I talked to my friend Paula. Uh, she is, her official title is uh, TVI comms, which basically means she teaches uh, students with visual impairments and she's able to help them with like navigation. TVI stands for Teachers of Students with Visual Impairments Certified Orientation and Mobility Specialist. So out of anyone, she, she's not blind, but she knows a lot about blind people and how this stuff works. And she's seen a lot of people and she's familiar with this, with Daniel Kish, but any, per, any student that she's helped, they can barely do anything like this. Okay. They're, they're not doing tongue clicks and it's something that's kind of hard to teach. It's more of like a learned experience in life. Uh, but what she told me that I don't know how I didn't realize this, like when a blind person uses a cane. What do you think they're doing? My assumption was that they were trying to feel things around. Yes, like it was just a long finger. Right, like you know, like, oh, five feet in front of me, there's something I can't walk into. Yes, so it's that, and they're tapping it. They're using, so not just the tongue click uh, echolocation, but all blind people are using echolocation too mm. when they're doing the tap. That makes sense because I, I can now recall like, walking down a road that you know is a straight road that it'll like tap 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 yes that makes sense and there if you're in like a city that has a lot of funding for things like you know and ada compliance is very strict and being followed you'll find at certain crosswalks like the texture of the ground intentionally changes there is like a special little like ridge or something that mm. you would feel with your feet or like the dots. Right. Yeah. And so some of it is that they feel different, but mm. also when you tap them, they sound different. Ah. So mm. that really blew my mind that this is something that's been happening that I've, I never realized. Yeah. It, but the craziest part, it's not exclusive to blind people. Everyone uses echolocation. We just don't know we're doing it. So in that same study from 2000, they had a lot of tests about like obstacle avoidance and they had uh, blind people and they had people who weren't blind. Uh, the correct term is they're sighted. So there were sighted people and blind people and they would blindfold the sighted people and they would have them, they would teach them how to use echolocation and they would hold certain objects in front of them that like, this is a square-shaped board. This is a circle-shaped board. This one's made of a different material. Mm. And after enough training, you could train a blind person how to do this. They, they often already knew how to be able to tell. And you could train someone who is sighted how to tell, like, how close an object was. They could teach them how to walk towards a wall and get as close as possible to it without touching it. Mm. And... One of the things that I thought was interesting about the blind people in this study is that they weren't doing tongue clicks. They weren't tapping a cane. Um, and the blind people didn't think they were performing echolocation. Hmm. Almost all the ones that were doing this test said, I have some sort of sensitivity to pressure on my face. And that is how I'm able to tell where I am. I'm not using my ears. So then they would do tests where they would like, put then put headphones on them or like blast the room with, with noise and make them walk around and they'd just walk into stuff and hit it. And they would have to tell them like, it is your ears. You are listening to the echo of these things. Uh, 
in or and it took that to convince them that they were doing echolocation, which I thought was crazy. It's wild. Whether you're blind or you're sighted, we often forget how important hearing can be to the conscious experience. So vision plays a big role in navigation, obviously. I'm not going to say that's not true. And so does our sense of touch. Like when we're walking, we can tell tiny differences in the ground and we see them with our eyes. But hearing supports these senses. And it's not just I hear a noise outside my window, but oftentimes it's I make this noise when I walk. And I know how it's supposed to sound when I walk in this area. And when it doesn't sound that way, I know something is off. And I then I go, look, you hear the thing first, mm-hmm. and then you're looking. And this comes up a lot in video. I learned uh, from my brother-in-law that there's kind of a joke in the audio production world that video production people like me are bad at audio because they're too focused on the visuals and they just spend no time on the audio. And... What's funny is that when the audio in a video doesn't sound like you expect, it often is more distracting yeah. than if your video footage wasn't as good. So we don't notice it normally until it is wrong, and then it stands out to us a lot. Hmm. So there was like a, an example I thought about today. I was thinking about baseball. Um, do you know what a warning track is? No. So if you're an outfielder at like a fancy field... They have grass in the outfield, and then there's a little section right near the fence that's dirt. And the goal is that if you're an outfielder chasing down a ball near the fence, you're looking up at the ball, not where you're running, Mm -hmm. and you're going to run into that fence, and you're going to get yourself a concussion. So they put a different texture on the ground, partially that you'll feel it, but you'll hear the difference between you running on the dirt versus the grass, and it tells you you're using echolocation to know where you are in space. So I wanted to close with the conclusion of the Schwitz Gable and Gordon's paper about human echolocation. Even though we echolocate, Nagel may still be right that we cannot know what it is like to be a bat. We hardly know what it's like to be ourselves. Thank you for listening to the Factoid Podcast. If you have a factoid or you want to share it with us, uh, send us an email at whatsyours at factoidpodcast.com. And as always, you can find us everywhere you get your podcasts or on our website, factoidpodcast.com. We'll see you in two weeks.